0: Psalm 87, this is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. Of the sons of Korah, a psalm, a song. He has founded his city on the holy mountain. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are said of you, city of God. I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me. Philistia, too, and Tyre along with Cush. And I will say this one was born in Zion. Indeed, of Zion it will be said, this one and that one were born in her, and the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord will write in the register of the peoples, this one was born in Zion. And as they make music, they will sing, all my fountains are in you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that in it you show us who you are and who we are in you. I thank you for the comfort it brings and the challenge it brings and most of all how it points us to Jesus and what he has accomplished for us. So I pray in these moments as we um, set our hearts on your word, opening the ears of faith that you would teach us, teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So a number of years ago, Angela and I were part of this new church plant in downtown Orlando. We, we started in this church plant kind of right at the very beginning. And this church plant was trying to be very purposeful about pursuing gospel-centered diversity. Orlando is an incredibly diverse place in lots of different ways. But if you go through Orlando, like a lot of places, the, that beautiful diversity is not reflected in the churches for the most part. And so this church plant was trying to be, again, very purposeful about this, and and part of what that meant is having sometimes difficult conversations. We would purposely bring up topics that most of the time churches, I think, avoid to be comfortable or not rock the boat too much. And so we would have these discussions about what it means to face racism or sexism from a gospel-centered Jesus perspective. It was a beautiful thing. Well, I remember one day I was talking with a buddy of mine there, a black man named Mark, with whom I had built this deep trust and friendship, and I don't remember exactly what we were talking about, but something I said in the conversation made him stop, and he asked me a question that, for me, was kind of a life-altering moment. He said, Tim, why do you act like being called a racist is the worst thing in the world? And I was a bit flabbergasted because, if I'm honest, the worst thing in the world that I think I could be called, the thing that would make my heart sink, was being called a racist. He was right. I did think it was the worst thing in the world. I was flabbergasted. And I kind of stumbled through an answer. And then he said this. Being called a racist... Or having prejudice pointed out is not the worst thing in the world. Because we all have prejudice. He said, I have prejudice. He said, the worst thing in the world is not being able to name our prejudices. Because then we can't move on. We cannot heal. And we will only wind up hurting other people and ourselves because we are too worried about our reputations. I'll say it again. Because, boy, it hit me right in the gut. He said, being called prejudiced or racist is not the worst thing in the world because we all have prejudices. The worst thing in the world is not being able to name our prejudices because then we cannot move on, we cannot heal, and we'll only wind up hurting ourselves and other people because we're too worried about our reputations. And he was exactly right. Because I am prejudiced. We all are. And I'm not just talking about racial prejudice, though. I think that's the first thing we tend to think of when we say prejudice. Um, Prejudice is when we make a decision about somebody before we actually know them based on whatever. And if you don't believe prejudice exists, uh, ask, (laughs) ask somebody from North Carolina how they feel about South Carolina. I know that's a small thing, but I know probably everybody in here has heard me rant about South Carolina and their poor upkeep of the roads and... You know, that's a state. But somebody says, I'm from South Carolina. Honestly, and if you're from South Carolina or a family in South Carolina, apologize. I'm thinking, eh, no, South Carolina. Duke fans and Carolina fans or Carolina fans and state fans. I know those are small things, but those are prejudices (laughs) that can pop up or the way Southerners feel about Northerners. If somebody walked in this door right now and they had a thick Boston accent, like Cocky's Boston accent, you would make decisions about them in your mind, whether you realize it or not, before you had a, a, a single thing to say to them, before you found out anything about them. And if you went up to Boston and you started walking around saying "ain't" and "y'all," same thing would happen. Where we have these prejudices. Now, some of those prejudices are a little more dangerous. Um, racial prejudices for instance but um, sometimes middle-class folks have prejudices against people in poverty some people from one part of town that live on one side of the tracks or one side of the highway they prejudices about people who live on the other side it happens People who live in cities can have prejudices against people who live in rural areas and vice versa. You may have a prejudice against people who have certain types of jobs. So they, they say, Oh, what do you do for a living? I do this. And your mind goes, uh, You know what I mean? or prejudices against people who have degrees from college or don't have degrees from college or what college they have a degree from, or prejudices against people who are in a different political party from you. I could keep going, but we have prejudices. They impact how we think about ourselves and other people. And the question I want to ask, is there any hope beyond prejudice? Is there any hope for connecting with people beyond those prejudices for reconciliation? Or is that just an unrealistic idea, something to talk about, but it just cannot happen? I bring that up because Psalm 87 is a psalm that is about that exactly. And what I think it points to, and I'm going to walk through it some more, is that the only thing that can truly root out and overpower our prejudices is when our hearts are captured by the grandeur of God's kingdom. And that begins by understanding what God is up to. So I'm going to have a couple different sections here, and the first one's this. The story of Scripture is God making a home for us with Him. So, kind of fly over through Scripture. In a sense, the story of Scripture is God making a home with His people. It begins in creation. So God creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in the Garden of Eden, a place where they will live in abundance um, and, and, and dwell with Him, commune with Him in friendship. I think sometimes we can think of the Garden of Eden like a paradise. It's almost, we think of it like a, like a resort hotel or something. Um, Adam and Eve were just there, and they were enjoying themselves. But if you read it, they actually were placed in the Garden with a commission. They were given a, a role to see the reality of the Garden of Eden spread to the whole earth. Eden was a tiny place. But they said, be fruitful and multiply. That was not just saying, go have relations and have a bunch of kids. God was saying, build out from here. You're going to have children. And what my goal is, is to dwell with you and your kids. I will be your God and you will be my people. Now, of course, sin disrupts this. But God's plan remains the same. There's a reason why the most... Uh, repeated promise in Scripture is some form of, I will be your God and you will be my people. God started with this one man, Abraham, and his family, and that family spread out to become a nation, and that nation grew to become a kingdom. All of that was one plan unfolding, in a sense. Think of it like an acorn to an oak tree. You see a little tiny acorn... What the acorn will become if it is planted is a mighty, mighty oak tree. Well, the promise of God to Abraham was a tiny acorn in a dark world. And as the Old Testament unfolded, as God continued to work, there were stages of growth leading to the fulfillment of that promise in Jesus. I will be your God and you will be my people, I bring all of that up because the psalm that we're reading today is from a, a, a stage of growth in that promise. You notice it talked about Zion and God establishing his city. Now, you hear the name Zion in the Old Testament. It's almost a poetic name for Jerusalem. So the city Jerusalem, where I can point it to you on a map, you can go there, fly there today, um, it is a poetic name, Zion, that points to what made Jerusalem such a special place in the first place. Not that it's inherently more holy. We call it the Holy Land, but like the sand there is not better sand than eastern North Carolina or anywhere else. It's not inherently holy. What makes it important is because it was starting there that God was making His home with His people. Jerusalem, in a sense, was like a ground zero for God's rescue mission. It was a, it was a headquarters from which the rescue mission would continue on. And all of that points forward, spoiler alert, to Jesus Christ, (laughs) where God not only made his home in a temple, symbolically, but when God became one of us. When he, and joined to him by faith, our lives are now hidden in Christ, and our citizenship is in heaven where he is. And all of this is preparing our hearts for the culmination of God's work, his making his home with us in a renewed heaven's and earth, where the world is healed and renewed. That's kind of an overarching thing that can, I think, give us some perspective of what's going on here, why this glorious city is glorious. Not just because it's a really great city, but because this is where God is operating and continuing to work to make His plan happen, to build a home where He will dwell with His people in grace. And so when we we read Psalm eighty-seven, it's at a time before Jesus has come into the world. God has established Zion, uh, Jerusalem, as this capital city. Um, and knowing all of that, knowing all of that background, is what makes this psalm so profoundly shocking. Which is what I'm coming to next, because it is really shocking. God welcomes us home. Verse three begins to speak about glorious things of God's city and this home that God is building. It tells us glorious things. And specifically, it tells us who is invited to call Zion their hometown. So it starts speaking about lots of different people. And this list, friends, because we are not uh, Israelites in the year 600 BC, it can be lost on us, but this list is shocking. This list is shocking. It's almost like somebody was making a list of the people they would least expect to say, Zion's my hometown. What God is about is what I'm about. So let's walk through the, the, the things listed here. The first one's Rahab. Rahab is a poetic name for Egypt. If you've seen Charlton Heston's The Ten Commandments or you've read through Exodus, you know very well that Egypt was the kingdom that had held Israel's ancestors in bondage. This is not a friend. This is a profound historical enemy. But this is listed as someone who can say, Zion's my hometown. That God is going to say, this one right here, Rahab, was born in Zion. This is their hometown. The next one's Babylon. At the time this psalm was being written, Babylon would have been the greatest present threat. It was the current enemy. Where Egypt was a foregone enemy of their ancestors and the stories that Israel would tell to one another and God revealed in Scripture, Babylon was the enemy at the gates in a sense. These are the bad guys (laughs) in their mind. Next is listed Philistia. Philistia, uh, that's the Philistines. That's probably the, 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 the most constant national threat that the Israelites had. They had warfare with the Philistines for hundreds of years. Goliath, from David and Goliath, name, Philistine. Then it mentions Tyre. Tyre was a kingdom that was kind of like uh, northwest of Israel, and it was the primary source of the worst idolatries that were at work in Israel for, throughout its history. It was the kind of biggest cultural threat, in a sense. The false gods that infected Israel came from Tyre or belief in them came a tire, And then it mentions Cush, which is Ethiopia. Now, we don't have a lot of history between Israel and Ethiopia as far as warfare, but if you were an Israelite, probably the furthest place you could think away from you would have been Cush. Like, that's far distant land, not other side of the world, in a sense. Again, it's like a list of people that an Israelite would least... Like to see and least expect to see welcomed home alongside them. But there it is. Right here in Scripture, Psalm 87, God is telling the Israelites that what He is doing is building this home and He is swinging the gates of that house open as wide as He wants to. And it's His kingdom and He decides who's in it. It's His home and He. He decides who's invited to live there. And what we see here is that the kingdom that God is establishing is a diverse place. It transcends and it even undermines the prejudices that, are, that would, have, would have been active in the heart of an Israelite at the time. And this tells us something important. Especially in our world where diversity is a catchword, you see it everywhere. People say diversity, diversity, and it can almost feel like a fad. But here, diversity is God's idea, it is part of His beating heart and His plan to unite people together under Him. And His kingdom will extend beyond the narrow confines of national Israel. It will extend beyond the resistance of Egypt or Babylon or Philistia or Tyre and even all the way to Cush, the other end of the world. Now I want you to imagine something. We're going to play act here. Imagine that you are an Israelite and you are at the temple involved in worship the first time this song is sung. So you're gathered there. And if you're a faithful Israelite, you're going to Jerusalem three times a year for festivals. So you're there, and you're kind of used to the, some of the songs that are sung and how the sacrifices are done. And anyway, these, uh, these guys called the sons of Korah, who were kind of like the, kind of like the janitors at the temple, in a sense. They were in charge of the physical stuff. They start singing a song that they've written. They start singing a song, and it hit, verse 3 hits, and you're not thinking verse 3, but you hear them say, glorious things are said of you, city of God, and you're thinking, yes, I love Jerusalem, glorious things are said of you, and then they sing, I will record, and these are words from God's mouth, I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me, Philistia too, and Tyre, along with Cush, and I will say, this one is born in Zion, And you look at the singers and you think, what? What? Them? I'm not making any political policy comment here, but I want us to get in our mind how shocking this would be. It's like if at the 4th of July a couple weeks ago, you were at an event and somebody stood up and sang the national anthem and then got to the end and had added a verse and said, yeah, uh, this is also for folks in Communist China. This is, welcome home, come home. This belongs to you too. Or started saying, you know, uh, the, the, the Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran, this is for you, this is yours. Welcome home, come home. You would be shocked. It would be the only thing on the news for two weeks. We would riot, right, I think. But this is as shocking as something like that. God's starting to list enemies. God's starting to list people who do not fit in the Israelite conception of what His kingdom is. So, back in Israel, you've heard this song, and you say, what? What? But then you remember who's singing. I mentioned it just a second ago, the sons of Korah. This was a group of people whose name, Korah, the sons of Korah, treat that like their last name, sons of Korah. They're descendants of Moses' nephew. You can read about Korah in the book of Numbers. But Korah was not famous because he was a good guy. Korah, the reason we know his name, is because he led an armed rebellion against Moses. Korah was rejecting what God was doing through Moses And he gathered a group of people to come against and overthrow Moses. Korah was like the Judas Iscariot of the Old Testament. Like a bad guy. Bad, bad guy. He had betrayed his uncle. He resisted what God was doing. And here we see his descendants singing this song. Those descendants were not rejected. They, like I said, they they cared for the physical stuff in the temple... Despite the rebellion of their ancestor, they had a place place there in God's household, quite literally. And the unique history of their family gave them an insight that more respectable people might have missed. The sons of Korah knew better than anybody that God's grace is greater than a bad last name or a wrong background. They knew better than anybody that a bad start to your story and your family story in particular does not mean that it has to end that way. That God can bend the worst story toward Himself for His glory and for your good. That just like the sons of Korah went from being the descendants of a wicked man to the writers of Scripture that we are reading today, we can go from the long shadows of our histories, the unbroken cycles of abuse, the scars of other people, and even our own sin to find our all in Jesus the sons of Korah and their unique history uniquely equipped them to be able to lead God's people in seeing the grandeur of what God was doing, to show them, to show us a picture of what God is up to so that the prejudices at work in their hearts and in our hearts can lose their power. Because if God has made a home and welcomed people profoundly different than us, how can we hold on to our prejudices anymore? Jesus is too wonderful. He's too wonderful for us to hold on to Him when they're dragged out into the light. We have to let our prejudices be put to death by Jesus because God is healing us and He is preparing us to rejoice in the glory of His kingdom. And that's the welcome. God is making His home here, not for condemnation, but for grace. And the doors have been flung open to welcome us, no matter our background, home. And that brings me to my last section. God invites us to sing. God invites us to sing. Psalm 87 is not God asking His people to simply shut up and pretend that slavery in Egypt wasn't bad or that Babylon wasn't a threat or whatever. It's also a call to repentance. Egypt cannot find their name written in Zion and still trade in slavery. Babylon could not continue to decimate people and find their hope in God. So, this isn't, this isn't God winking at the reality of what all those uh, nations listed have been. He's not winking at these injustices and pretending that they don't matter. But it is an invitation for them and for us to lay down our arms. To come to Him and find what it means to be Egypt and Babylon and Tyre remade and redefined by the gospel. To be reconciled to others, truly reconciled in Him. An invitation to not just turn from maybe a bad reputation or a background we don't like, but to even turn from our sin against God and others. And that's what verse 7 means, the last one here. As they, together, make music, they will sing, All my fountains are in you. The call to us is to come to God and find in Him our all. To hear this welcome, to sing this song. All my fountains are in you. You are the source of every good thing. Your grace is my strength and my nourishment. To find Jesus and in Jesus a love that's stronger than our prejudices. A love that's more beautiful than our sin is ugly. Now this morning, maybe you had prejudices against people who look different than you. Different skin color. People that have tattoos or don't have tattoos, people that have piercings, or don't have piercings. Maybe you have prejudices against people who have what you think are crazy hair colors or haircuts, or they wear clothes that you think are ugly or immodest. The invitation for us is to allow Jesus to put those prejudices to death, to open our eyes to see the beauty of His kingdom. Maybe you have prejudices against people who live in poverty, or have had to do things to make ends meet that you think, I would never do that. Maybe you have prejudice against people with drug and alcohol addictions. Maybe you have a prejudice against people who have been divorced or people who have desires different than you. Allow Jesus to put those prejudices to death and open your eyes to the beauty of His kingdom. Maybe you have prejudice against people from other countries than you, from different political parties from you. Whatever it may be, we have to allow Jesus to put those prejudices to death and to open our eyes to the glory and reality of His kingdom. And here's the good news, friends. Jerusalem as a physical location of God beginning His work pointed forward to Jesus. Jesus who came to be one of us. Jesus who came to take our sins. Jesus who walked in our steps. Jesus who faced down and defeated death and rose in victorious life and in turn gives us that victory. Jesus the one to whom this idea of Zion was pointing all along. So now God has made his home with us, not at one physical location in the Middle East, but throughout the world. And his kingdom spread to every tribe and tongue and nation. We are people whose home is with God, is where we belong. That in Jesus. We are those who are called from wherever we are and whoever we are. To find our all in Him. That we can look to Jesus, the one who called a wide variety of people to follow Him. Women, men, children, fishermen, tax collectors, widows, the poor, the rich. I could keep going. We can look to Him and, and, and begin to be people who love what He loves and value what He values. Now, I'm bringing all of this up because we are here in Dunn, North Carolina. And we are called to this place to live out the reality of, of God's kingdom as well as we can together here. A church is almost like a, 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 or should be almost like a a movie trailer for the kingdom of God. The grandeur of the kingdom of God, people should be able to look to the church and say, I see it, I see it. I bring all this up because Dunn is a diverse community in a lot of ways. It's diverse racially, it's, it's diverse economically, it's diverse generationally. So as we are looking toward the future, and we are hoping to build something by God's grace that will be here as long as human beings are in this area, let's begin to step into what this can mean as a church, to be somewhere where that beautiful diversity that God has created is reflected. Let's begin to pray about topics that affect the broad range of our community. Let's be a place where um, hard conversations can be had and blind spots revealed, but we're not angling or worried about a verdict pass like I talked about before, where we're not thinking the worst thing that can happen is I'm identified as prejudice. These are not scary things. Because the person who's working on our heart is Jesus, who's already shown how much he loves us. We can face all this without guilt, without shame, because all of our fountains, all of our good is found in Jesus. So let's be people who find our home in Jesus and find our welcome in Him. And people that hold our door open for this city. People who fling the doors of the kingdom open and say, welcome, come home to this weary world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the hard truth that you spoke to us this morning. I pray, Lord, that we would be mindful of our desire to um, uh, not open our eyes to the wideness and the grandeur of your kingdom, but that you would move upon us that we would see it as a beautiful and a wonderful thing. I pray that you would protect us, too, against people who make diversity an idol, an idol, that we would not see something like diversity as something that is at odds with the truth that you've given us. Cause us to love your gospel, to love your truth, and to love how you will manifest your kingdom and grace here. Prepare our hearts to be a part of it. And may we be open to challenge by you and your Holy Spirit Not in fear, not in guilt, not in shame, but in joy in a sense. Because you are healing our hearts to prepare us more and more to glory in your kingdom. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.